0: You know, we as Christians are celebrating this day, we say it is the greatest day in all of history because it is the day in which Jesus rose again from the dead. And today what we want to talk about is we want to talk about how that resurrection changes our lives for today. So our passage this morning is going to be three different verses. I'm just going to read it to you, and if you want to follow along, you could track it in your Bibles. But it's a reminder of life, and especially new life. Our first passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 1. verses 18 to 19. For you know that this was not the perishable thing such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and from which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I receive, I pass to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that remind us of a few things. One is that our lives do matter before you. But the things that we pursue are the things that bring emptiness, that bring a sense of meaninglessness to life. But you have redeemed us You have rescued us. You have saved us from an empty way of life, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, that you give us a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving, not to earn your favor, but as a result of your favor, the result of your grace. So thank you again for uh, this day in which we celebrate the greatest event of all of history. That you were not just a good teacher, you were not just a moral leader, you were not just a prophet, but you were the Son of the living God, and you live and reside in us today. What a great message for us! A message of hope. And so we thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm gonna show you two images to begin my message. And this week, many of you, when you turned on the news, On April 15, you saw this building in flames. It's the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The spire and the oak room collapsed after a spectacular fire that destroyed the large part of the dome. And this burned for several hours, and 400 firemen came to contain the blaze. And it was one of the sad days of France. This building is over 850 years old. And it is the number one visited uh, monument in all of Paris, more than even the Eiffel Tower. It was long a historical reminder of this beauty, the grandeur of this cathedral. And as the building was burning, there was one particular scene that caught my attention. People were gathered around, and they were literally in tears as this building was in flames. And they started to break out in a French hymn, a song as they were using that song as a prayer, that this building might be saved. The second image is of a girl, kind of huddled. That represents another story that happened this week. Uh, a few days later, <coughs> my daughter texted me, and she said, Dad, um, they found a ninth-grade girl from our high school who had taken her own life. She had jumped off a building in Cal State Fullerton to her death. A ninth grade little girl, a Korean American, who was academically doing well. And yet she had something in her mind that said life is not worth living. And so she chose the ultimate form. of rebellion, she decided to jump off and take her own life. This young girl had all the potential and yet felt a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. In both those stories, I'm reminded how quickly life can fade, how quickly life can burn, how quickly our hopes can be crushed and destroyed. When I thought about that little girl, I recalled a quote that went something like this. Courageous, that's what you see me. Successful, that's what you believe in me. Happy, that's what you expect of me. But emptiness, that's what's inside of me. See beyond this facade, this exterior of our happy lives lies a heart that is empty, that is lonely, and at times feeling a sense of desperation. And we think to ourselves, what if I wasn't living this life? What if I lived somebody else's life? And so we sit, look at the person sitting next to us or in front of us or, or as we're in the lobby and say, man, I wish I had that person's life. Because my life would be so much better if I was in their shoes instead of my own. We all tend to think that way at, at some point, don't we? But what we don't realize is that when we think that way, the grass is not really greener on the other side. Somebody said, "Uh, you think the grass is greener on the other side. It's not really grass. It's artificial turf. It's not real. There's a, a story written by Mark Twain many years ago, The Prince and the Pauper. And the story told about a prince named Edward and a poor peasant named Tom Cantry. And they decided to switch places thinking that the other life was better than the the life that they had. The prince in royalty, the the pauper in poverty. But what they didn't realize is this, that in both lives, there was misery. The reality of trading places with someone else is that there's always a downside. When you trade places with someone else, you not only receive their blessing, you also embody their curse. Think about anybody in your life. You think that their life is good on the outside, but deep inside, you have no idea of their heart condition. You know, I thought about this, that, you know, the things that we think bring fulfillment in life, once you achieve it, really kind of leave you a little empty, doesn't it? Tennis uh, star Boris Becker, many years ago, a German superstar, was at the top of the tennis world, and yet he was on the brink of suicide. He said this, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions that I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. Boris Becker is not the only one who feels a sense of emptiness. The echoes of a hollow life pervade our culture. You see this in our biographies, you see this in our, in our tabloids, you see that in our news, people we think should have it made really are in shambles, in a disarray. And so when you think about emptiness of life, there's so many of us who beyond this sort of successful exterior lies an interior that is empty. One French philosopher, a mathematician, uh, a French philosopher named Blas Pascal said these words, inside of all of us is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by created things, only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Pascal kind of observed that inside all of us, we were designed to have a need filled. So all of us in this room have this short of what we would call a God-shaped vacuum that we try to fill with all the things around us, whether that be our possessions, whether that be uh, uh, people's uh, sort of accolades, whatever that is inside of us, we try to fill it. And we think that the more we fill it, that the more happy we become. And so a student studies hard to get into college, thinking that college is the ultimate thing. A young adult climbs the corporate ladder thinking that the higher they climb, the more successful and happy they'll become. A single person looks for that perfect mate, that male or female in, in their mind that they have idealized as Prince Charming or one of the Disney princesses. A single pers- uh, young married is saving their, their income for marriage, and, and then a young family is investing their life into their children. And all these things which are good things Uh, uh, start filling our lives and we think that those are the things that bring fulfillment and happiness in our empty lives. But what we don't realize is this, that our heart is like a black hole. And the black hole sucks in all those things and instead of leaving us filled, it leaves us hollow. I'm not sure if you feel like that way at, at, at different times. Because at the root of all of our humanity... Beyond all our culture, beyond our, all the differences between gender differences, between whatever difference we have, there lies a common theme. And this theme is this, that all of us are seeking happiness. Pascal uh, continues and he says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and some avoiding it. It is the same desire in both. Attending with different views. He will never take the least step but to the subjective. In other words, everything we do is toward that means of finding this elusive thing called happiness. And then he says, this is the motive of every person, even to those who harm themselves. Even those who commit suicide, their misery is so bad, they think that death will bring them happiness and solve their misery. I think all of us at some point ask that deep question of what is meaning, what is purpose. It's what I call the quest for a good life. Well, the answer to that quest lies not in the pieces of our lives, but in the box of our lives. And what I mean by that is, have you ever played a jigsaw puzzle? If you've ever bought a jigsaw puzzle, you know the the, the key is not the little pieces because the little pieces are, you know, you have colors, you have dark, you have white, you have this or that, and and they just look like all these different pieces. Here's the key to solving a jigsaw puzzle. It's the box top. When you look at that picture, that helps you then put all the dark pieces together, all the light pieces together, because you know what the end picture looks like. And you see, this is a thing that God reminds us, that there is an end picture. And it's whatever we look to that helps us put those little pieces of our lives together. You know the great thing about the video you just saw? These are people right here in our church who struggle, who wrestle with life. And one of the things that they talk about is that, you know, you have no control over what happens in your life. Very little. Now, you could plan, you could you say if you could prepare, but there are a lot of things that happen that that are beyond our control. And the question is, what is the box top of your lives that defines your reality? See, I think for many of us, the emptiness comes because we're trying to fill the very thing that, that God has shaped our hearts for, himself, with other things, one of the best uh, stories in the Bible is, is, a, is actually a diary. It's called the Book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament, and it's written by a man named Solomon. Now, the beautiful thing about Ecclesiastes, it's like a trilogy. He wrote three books. He wrote a book early in his life called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs, which was a love poem. It was a romantic book. It was what teenagers would write or young adults would write. It's, it's about this idealistic idea of love. The second book he wrote sort of in his middle age called the book of Proverbs, which are wise sayings that he wrote about life. And there's 31 chapters. The beautiful thing about uh, the book of Proverbs is that you could read one chapter uh, a day, and at the end, you, you could finish it in one month. But the last book he wrote was at the end of his life. And it was the book in which he reflects on all the things that has happened. This book is, to me, is, is a diary of, of his life. And you know the thing he says at the diary? The first entry of his diary was this. The words of the teacher, the son of king, the son uh, of David, king of Jerusalem. And then he says, his whole conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. vanity. Vanity. You know, you think about Solomon. Some of you say, okay, what 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 kind of life did Solomon have? You would think that this man had everything you could ever want on on this planet. One, he was a son of royalty. He was a royal, he was a prince that became the king of a nation. He was one of the smartest men of all of human history. People would come from miles just to listen to the wisdom of this man. If you read the book of Proverbs, it is amazing the wisdom that this man had. Not only did he have wisdom, not royalty, he was the most popular person. He was so popular that people would like hear about this guy from other nations all the way down to the Middle East of, 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 of Egypt and all the surrounding kingdoms. And we want to meet this guy. He became almost like a superstar. He was also the wealthiest man. The Bible describes in 1 Kings 10 that he had so much wealth that gold and silver was like pebbles on the ground. And lastly, uh, he was a man who enjoyed uh, women. And he had so many wives that that it's almost a miracle that that this man survived life. He had 950. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That this man had everything that somebody would want. And yet, at the end of his life, a man who writes his diary said, Meaningless, meaningless utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But in this book of Ecclesiastes, there's some wisdom there. In this meaningless pursuit, at the very end, he says something very unique. But before he gets to the very end, you know what he says? He, he talks about four different pursuits. He talks about different paths that we can take. And the first path that he lays out is prudence, or what I would call uh, the pr- pursuit of, of, of academic wisdom. And he said this in chapter 1, I, the teacher, was king over Israel. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the sun. And then he says, what a heavy burden that God has laid on men. And then at the very end in verse 18 in chapter 1, he says, for with much wisdom comes sorrow and more knowledge, more grief. He studied so hard that he got straight A's all the way through his PhD program. And yet he says this, the more I studied, the more miserable life became. Now some of you uh, maybe have grown up in a culture where academics was your god, was your idol. You pursued that because that's what your parents told you to pursue. Because you think that by getting all these degrees at the end of your name, that somehow that you will have prestige and position and you would have happiness. But there is a saying, isn't there, that says ignorance is what? Bliss. There's something about lack of knowledge that actually makes you more happy. The more you know, the more miserable life is. Well, So he decides to take a different path. He says, you know what, forget wisdom. I'm going to just indulge in my pleasure. And so he took on the path of pleasure. One of the things he said is, forget about what lies ahead. I'm just going to enjoy what I have in front of me. And so in verse chapter 2, verse 10, he says something interesting. He goes, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and all that was under the sun, and yet I survived. And all of this is meaningless. Imagine of your life, you can say this: that I had access to every pleasure I could imagine and fulfill. Some of us would think, "Wow, that wouldn't that be great if we can do whatever we wanted to do?" But then he says that life was meaningless. And many of us in in our culture have that sort of moment, don't we, that that we're not looking down the road. We just want to see what's in front of us. Uh, I saw a great little cartoon. Many of you know Calvin and Hobbes. I I grew up with Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin's a little boy with an imaginary philosopher, (laughs) a tiger named Hobbes. And in one of the cartoons, Calvin says, you could step in the road tomorrow and wham, you get hit by a cement truck. That's why my model, Calvin says, is live for the moment. What's your motto? And Hobb answers, my motto is look down the road. See, some people, they don't care about what's down the road. They just want to, you know, it's, life is going gonna to all die anyway, so let's die with the most toys, or let's indulge in every pleasure. But something about pleasure that in itself is a prison. The more you indulge, the more you need something else to indulge in. Oscar Wilde once said, the gods had given me everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensation. If you're young, you have your whole life in front of you. And you think, man, if I just pursue this, I will be so happy. And then you look down the road and you got run over by a cement truck. Last week, something uh, I had an interesting conversation with uh, one of our pastor's wives, Laura. And Laura went to uh, uh, San Diego State. And she, she was telling me a little bit about what happened at San Diego State. She goes, you know, I remember there was one moment where I had to choose between this or that. And it was um, the first few weeks of school. And she said to, she told me that, It was to go to a college retreat or to do this kind of sorority rush. And she thought, okay, if I go here, I know I'm going to meet a lot of new people. I'm going to have all the fun. But if I go there, I'm going to worship God. and, and, And so she chose to go to the college retreat. She said that saved her life. That one moment in time, she chose a different path. And she saw a lot of her friends go down a different path. Well, pleasure can do that to you. It could sedate our minds to think that life is, is about the here and now. But there's a third path that many of us take. It's not the path of pleasure. You know, you get tired of it at, at some point. So you want, you, what you want is you want a job. You want position. You want a place in which people are going to admire you for the work that you do. And so in chapter 2, he says this, So I hated life, verse 17. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. <coughs> a chasing after the wind. What he's saying is this. And he gives this amazing analogy of saying, let's say all of you get a job. You get a really good salary. You get the highest position. And your job is to build something. And so you build this amazing building. 20 years later, 30 years later, you retire. Or you get laid off or whatever. And then the guy comes after you. Takes what you've done, demolishes it, and builds something else. You know what Solomon said? Think about that, how meaningless that is. You spent your whole life building this thing, and yet somebody comes and, and sees it as trash. And so the, so the, your job is meaningless, can be. But the last thing he says okay, forget about pleasure, forget about position you know what I'm going to pursue? I'm going to pursue possession. If there is one God of our generation, of our uh, America or affluence, is this, that, that we want toys. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And so we go on this path of acquiring. But here's the thing about possessions, just because our hearts are filled with this emptiness, is that the more possessions that we acquire, the more empty our lives become, and the more Saddled with death, we experience. Possessions often lead to greed because you are never satisfied with what you have. You know what he says in chapter (coughs) 5, verse 10? If you want to frame a verse in the Bible on your your wall, this is a good verse to frame. Chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. So here's the reality. When, without an empty tomb, you are pursuing everything else to fill that emptiness. As Daniel uh, Estelle shared eloquently in in that poetic reading, is that that emptiness is what ends up with life. And sometimes we don't experience it until later on in life. I remember one of our congregation members. I had to run to do some counseling because this woman, this, they had just recently gotten married, found that her husband or her father took a, a gun and, and shot himself in the head. What she didn't realize was that he had been saddled with all this debt in his life, and he took his own life because he had no hope. Well, that's what happens when, without, when our tomb is filled. But here's the good news of the gospel. That when Jesus rose again, that he rose again, and the empty tomb is what an amazing symbol of death. Now is given life. And so here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into an inheritance that can never perish. In other words, God has given us something that is eternal because we are not made perishable. We are not just made in, just in material. That inside of us is this immaterial thing called the soul. And the only thing that can fill the eternal soul is the eternal God. And so when Jesus came, he didn't come just as a moral teacher to give you rules so that you can live your lives by. He didn't come to be some, uh, some religious scholar to write a little fortune cookie saying so that you could uh, say, oh, that's, that's nice. Jesus made one declaration. And his declaration was simply this, that he was God in human flesh. And because he was God in human flesh, that whosoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Now, any prophet, any person can say that, but here's the thing. Jesus said, I will prove that I am God. On the third day, I will rise again. And the resurrection is the crux, is the centerpiece of everything that we believe. And so, the empty tomb gives us a meaningful life. And the thing that Jesus says is because he's rose again. And as all the disciples began to wonder, because think about the disciples, and, 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 as, as we heard in that poem, is that they saw Jesus die. And with Jesus' death, what they saw was their hopes being dashed. Because in Jesus, they had the wrong idea of who Jesus was. Yes, he might have been the Messiah, but not in the way they thought he was. He was a political savior who was going to liberate them from Rome. He He was just a moral leader and so they were following him in hopes that they would get something from him. What they didn't realize, that Jesus himself was God in human flesh. Think about the radical nature of what that is being said. Because Jesus rose from the dead, here's the good news. We don't celebrate a day that Jesus just rose. He is living today that every single day is Easter. If Jesus rose from the dead, then the the, the very emptiness can only be filled by the very one who created that, God himself. But you know, here's the thing. When God offered his son to us, there's still a choice to be made. Either we receive that gift or reject it. It doesn't matter whether you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to not only believe, you have to receive. There's a big difference, isn't there? There was a, um, a young man who came from a very wealthy family. He had graduated from high school. And it was the custom of this affluent neighborhood for the parents to give a a car for the graduation gift. Bill and his father spent months looking for a car, and a week before graduation, they found this amazing, perfect car. And on the eve of the graduation, his father handed him a gift wrap Bible. This young man opened it up, and he was so incensed. He was so angry, and he threw the Bible down and stormed out of the house, and he left his home for good. He and his father never saw each other again. Many years later, he heard that his father had passed, and he came home to sort out dad's belongings, and as he was going through his father's possession, he came across the Bible that his father had given him. And he brushed away the dust, and he opened it up, and what he found was an envelope. And inside the envelope was a cashier's check on the very day of his graduation, in the exact, exact amount for the car that they had chosen. This young man didn't receive He was presented a gift, but he never received it. And because he never received it, he was never able to benefit. And here's the good news of the gospel. That gift is given to you not because you deserve it. That gift is given to you because God chose in his great mercy to give you an inheritance that will never perish. But the role that we have is to receive. And this is why I think a lot of people have a problem they have a problem because, you know, they intellectually may believe in God or even intellectually may believe in Jesus. But here's the problem. It's not about just believing. It's about submitting. You know, we talk about bondage. And, um, and, and most of the word for bondage is negative, right? That none of us want to be in bondage to anything because the thing that we're in bondage to enslaves us. But there's one thing that the Bible tells us to be in bondage to. Paul describes himself as a bondservant as a slave to Jesus. And when you think about that, when a slave is submitted to the right master, then everything that the master does, if that master is a good master, actually liberates and frees, gives freedom in a way that is freeing and that's what the Bible says, that the, the God has created us and that we are to submit ourselves to him. And if we willingly submit ourselves to him, then there is freedom and every other bondage then gets stripped away because the thing that holds us together in life, that fills that void, that emptiness, that black hole, is the only thing that can fill it, is the one who created it. As Pascal said, inside of every man, And woman is a God-shaped vacuum. So you know what happens when that hole gets filled? Because Jesus died and rose again, it makes a difference. One, our past is forgiven. That no matter what you have done, God gives you a a fresh beginning. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Not only does he fill our hearts, He transforms it into a new creation. And so our mind, our behavior, our actions, all are transformed by this new life that God gives to us. And he frees us from our past sins. And he forgives us. And that receiving of that forgiveness allows us to forgive others. People that have treated us with injustice. People that have lied to us. People that have cheated us. We forgive because God has forgiven us. But the second thing is this, that my present problems can be managed. If you ever feel like your life is out of control, that's probably the number one complaint that people have. I feel like my whole life is out of control. We hear it a thousand times. I feel powerless to change the situation. I feel powerless to break a bad habit. I feel powerless to save a relationship. I feel powerless to get out of debt. I feel powerless to manage my schedule. Here's the answer to that. You have to have a power greater than yourself. If you submit yourself to what Jesus has done, then you have new power to be able to overcome. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 says, How incredibly great is the power... To help you, to help those who believe. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. The power of God to transform us. That our present, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) problems can be managed. But here's the last thing. Is that our future can be secure. Here's here's the difference between a life without God and a life with God. Life without God brings uncertainty. You will live your life, and you can live your life with our defined happiness and and have a nice car and have a nice house and and do all the things that everybody else is. But there comes a point in all of our experience that the future is unpredictable. And so you're going to experience things, disappointments, sometimes even pain and brokenness that you never anticipated. And the question of your life is this, when all those things are shaken, what is the foundation? And as Christians, our foundation is in a secure future because we have a secure God. Our hope in God himself is what causes us to have hope, that, that when we lose our jobs, on the same day that we find our wife or spouse has cancer, or when we struggle with, with infertility for many years, hoping that, that we want to have a child, but yet we can't. Or, or maybe... As a single person, you have this idealistic vision of meeting this man or woman and and you want to be married so badly and yet there is nobody inside and you feel this emptiness and you say to yourself, God, why are you doing this to me? And God says to you, the things that you are trying to fill are going to leave you emptier. And what happens is when God or Christ fills that empty heart, Then he provides all the other things he sometimes takes away. Sometimes he adds. And what you realize is that when that hole is filled, that life actually does have meaning. That life does have purpose. Life does have hope. So who are you following? There was a Muslim um, college student who came to believe in Jesus. And one of the friends was shocked and asked him, why did you become a follower of Jesus? His response was simple. He goes, it's, it's relatively simple. Imagine that you're walking down a road, and you come to a fork in the road, and there are two people there to guide you along the way. One of them is dead, and the other is alive. Which one would you follow? The reason that we believe... That we can be transformed is not because we have the power to because of the risen Savior who conquered death, whose tomb is empty, and who is alive right now. The message of Easter is that, that all of you in this room can have hope for tomorrow. And so the hope for tomorrow is our hope for today. Jesus is risen.